0: All right, good evening. How are you guys doing? Yeah, that's good. Um, cool. I'm Elijah. Nice to meet you guys. That was That was a golden Canada welcome. Aren't you guys supposed to be like the nicest people on earth? What just happened? That was you guys were not ready for that. No, I don't want to do it again. That's that's I'll bring shame on my family name. Um or something like that. I don't know how that works. Um, well it is nice to meet you though. Don't say anything. Um, cool, I'm really excited to share tonight. Um, yeah. You know, on Friday night I was with the youth and I spent the whole first seven and a half minutes making fun of Canada, and I'm not gonna do that. I am in, I'm in Canada's treasure right now. This is the the great pearl of Canada, isn't it? So, Edmonton, let's go. I love the Elks. When I was in the airport, I mistook them for the Green Bay Packers, and I was very confused. Um, So that's funny. All right, I'm gonna pray, and then, We'll talk, all right. Jesus, we love you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for just being here with us, for sharing the room with us, for being present. Thank you, Jesus, we don't have to earn that, fight for it, that you're just here. So Lord, we love you. just pray that you would move tonight, Holy Spirit, that your will would be done, that every word from my tongue would be yours and not mine. Yeah, just pray you do your thing tonight. Yeah, whatever you wanna do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm not a pretty prayer. I just ramble at God. It's fun. Um, Okay, sweet. Let's do this thing. So tonight I uh, I I'm not intro this. I don't have a a sexy intro for my sermon. I like is that a weird word to describe it with? I think I love when that word is used casually. Like I think it's funny to call things that. So but that's because I'm a 14 year old boy deep down inside, and I will be forever. Um, Welcome to manhood. I love Legos and one day I will be a father, okay. <laughs> Those are connected somehow. All right, cool, sweet, okay. Uh, yeah, I just wanna share a word that I was feeling really heavily today. I like reworked this entire sermon and just brain dumped because um, I really felt like I needed to change it. So that's fun, that's exciting. Um, yeah, the, the sermon that I wrote, at the t- this is the title I wrote. This is not a real title, but the title is What's Wrong with David? Um, so many things. Do you know a David personally, or are you talking about David in the Bible? Okay, <laughs> not that David, uh, the Bible one. Uh, and it's because this is the verse I wanna start with. It's Psalm 27, four. David says, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Um, so the question is what's wrong with him because that's not a normal human thing to say or to feel as far as like modern Western culture is concerned and even probably as far as like ancient Jewish culture is concerned. Like David probably stood out. Um, if, you, if God came to me right now and was like, if I could give you anything, what would you ask for? Um, I, maybe I might be in a place now where I'd answer like David, but for the, the bulk of my life I wasn't and I would imagine many of us are in that place where it's like, At the very least, I'd have to stop and think about it for a while. like Not like the jerk reaction would be like, you, God, I want you. But that's what David does, because he was crazy, maybe, or he was right. So that's what we're gonna figure out. Um, Or he was a genius and an adulterer. Let's go, David. He he got confused, he tripped up. We all mess up, guys, okay? Not that bad, but we do. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so. This has kind of been the journey I've been on the past few years of figuring out um, in verses like this, like what is David onto and what kind of God is David experiencing for him to, to say something like that where he really says to God, hey, like, oh, what's up? Um, we know each other. Social media, I just realized that right now. What's up, bro? Um, that is funny. Okay, sorry, I have ADHD, really bad, not medicated because I believe in the healing power of God, so. And, and ADHD is my secret weapon, actually. Um, okay. Let's get to something. Let's do something meaningful. Um, I remember what I was talking about. But David, like really looking to God and honestly from the depth of his heart saying, God, if there's one thing I could have, it would be you. And I just wanna be where you are and I just wanna look at you. He says to gaze upon your beauty. So he recognizes that God is beautiful and then says I want to be on the receiving, like I wanna be looking at your beauty and admiring you for the rest of my life every single day. That's crazy. There's a way that he must have experienced and understood God that I have not for him to be able to come to that conclusion. And so we're gonna consider two possibilities here. Either one, David was really, really dramatic, which he was at times, but maybe not in this Psalm. and Or two, Jesus is better than we think he is. And uh, we're gonna throw number one right out the door immediately. Um, not even gonna consider that. So now we're just gonna talk about the fact that Jesus is better than we think. Um, and that's kinda just the journey of have on, is realizing that Jesus is, is better. He's better than the best thing. Um, it's like the name of a song we used to sing at my church when I was a kid. Jesus, you're better than the best thing, dude, it goes hard if you get the chance, give that one a listen. Um, so in 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen, Paul talks about how in, uh, in our in our relationship with with the Lord, right now, because we're in flesh and because we 're on earth and we 're not in heaven yet, we, we see through a glass dimly lit, and so it's like we're peering through a glass and there's not a lot of lights so we're like looking through trying to see God clearly and then so immediately, just because of the restrictions of being human, we, every single person in this room, you are susceptible to seeing God incorrectly and seeing God in a way that he doesn't really look. Um, and, then, and then what happens is there's this guy called Satan who is very real, who hates you, hates your guts, because he hates God more than he hates you and God really loves you, and so he's like, I'm gonna take what's God's, and that's his whole agenda against your life. Satan hates you, and what he wants to do is make all of humanity see God wrongly. That is his full-time job, that is his number one thing he wants to do, is to make it so that we don't see God correctly. In Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse four, Paul talks about those who don't know Jesus, have, they, Satan has placed a veil over their eyes so that they cannot see clearly. In, in John chapter eight, it talks about Satan as being the father of lies. So he's a liar and he wants to mystify God and put barriers between us and just make God all blurry and confusing so that we cannot see him clearly for what he's really liked, uh, for what he's really like, he, he clouds our vision, vision of God and so if if, if the way we see God actually matters to us, it's important that we come back to the way God has chosen to reveal himself. That's all the Bible is. It's this number one way God wants to show you what he's like. And the number one way, that not the only way, but the number one way that God wants to interact with you. Yeah. So we have to come back here and say, okay, what has Jesus shown me and proven himself to be like? Because Satan is a liar. And Satan wants me to think wrong things about God. and. Obviously, like I can't talk about every lie of Satan. He—he's really good at lying. He is a lying factory. He's the father of lies. And so there's a million lies I can't get after. And, and it goes all the way down to the basics of like Satan wants us to think that Jesus isn't God in the first place, which is crazy. Um, and so we have to undo that. That's you know one of the things. But I don't have time for that tonight. That's like a whole teaching series um, through the whole Bible. Um, but tonight I just I just want us to see how we can get closer to the heart of David and sense and feel and know that Jesus is better than we think he is. And so I wanna go through three main lies that I think, um, I'm gonna go really fast, that I think Satan um, has put on our culture and on our world that all humans, since the beginning, have been susceptible to believe, and that we naturally have a proclivity to be convinced of these things. Satan doesn't even have to work very hard for us to believe these things at this state in our culture because we've been so, become, become so convinced of what he says about God. So the first lie I wanna talk about is that God is disinterested in you. Um, yeah, this is great. I, I'm just gonna talk about the cross for the bulk of this message, and I remember growing up and like hearing messages on the cross, I'd be like, ugh, eh, boring, move on. Like, been there, done that, heard that, whatever, I'm over it, but like, and then, I, and then God rebuked me gently and said, ooh, you're stupid. Um, that's not what he said, but that's, in the moment I was like, oh man, I've been misunderstanding. The cross is the best thing that's ever happened ever, and it's the most shocking, amazing, crazy thing that's ever happened, and I'll never be able to wrap my mind around it. It's crazy, and so I just wanna go there with you, but the, the reason I wanna do this is, For everyone in this room, whether you know Jesus or not, if you don't know Jesus, well, cross is a great place to start, and if you don't know Jesus, then, or if you do know Jesus, then the cross is a great place to stay. That's really what, you want cross-centered Christianity, the moment the death and resurrection of Jesus leaves the focus of your Christianity, you've missed out on what God has told you is the most important thing he ever did. And so it's, the cross and the resurrection are the clearest moments we get to see of what Jesus is really like. Um, And so we're just gonna go there tonight. Okay, so yeah, the lies that God is disinterested in you, that he is, Tired of you, that he um, you know, doesn't want you, that he rejects you altogether, or even that he hates you. If that's anything that you have felt towards God, I'm here to tell you it's a lie, and I'm going to show you scripturally why that's not true. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, this is, this is the money shot, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So I want to focus on that phrase, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So the questions we need to answer is, one, what was enduring that like? And two, what was the joy set before him? We're gonna flip it around. So first of all, this is like the hardest verse for me to read in the entire Bible. It's excruciating even to look at and know that it's true. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, this is a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah in this, a part of his book is just nonstop talking about the Messiah. And he says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In really simple language, they beat him so badly he was not recognizably human. That is what Isaiah is saying. Prophesying about this 450 years in advance and then it comes to pass when Jesus goes through the most gruesome execution that you can imagine. Like, deeply, deeply painful. And like marring beyond beyond human recognition that he didn't look human anymore. Like obviously this is hyperbole because he was still a featherless biped, you know, walking on two, lights. you ever heard that before? I think it's like aerosol or something, I don't know, one of those idiots. Um, <laughs> obviously it's hyperbole, but the point is, is like, I mean, 39 whips covered in glass and bone and shards and whatever they would put on those things, ripping your flesh off your body, that's pretty intense. And Jesus endured that, and then he was nailed to a cross. Like, I, I can't go through the whole stations of the cross situation with you, but Jesus endured something horrific, horrific, um, beyond being recognizably human. So this is what he's enduring. This is the shame that he's despising. I think we have to like pause for a moment and just think about, think about the fact that like Jesus wasn't stoked on being crucified. like He wasn't like, I'm looking forward to this. You can read in the Gospels where Jesus is like sweating blood from the anxiety and the pressure of it. And like man, I wish there was another way, but there wasn't. This is the way it had to go. This is the way that, from the beginning, the triune God divinely agreed upon redeeming humanity. So we can we, we can misunderstand when Jesus is like praying and Father, let this cup pass from me, um, if we think that Jesus is like, never mind, God, I disagreed about your plan. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, agreed eternities past on how they were going to redeem humanity. That's a longer theological conversation, but I just want that to be clear. Um, uh, Isaiah continues in, in, in chapter fifty three. He says in verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that it's, a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Like Jesus was being accused of all these crazy, wild things that weren't true, and they were justifying his execution based on those things, and he didn't even stop to defend himself because he was so committed to going to the cross for your sake didn't defend himself, and endured that kind of suffering. It's crazy, it's otherworldly, it doesn't make any sense why Jesus, who was God, would, would be willing to, to do that. But there's what the scripture tells us in Hebrews 12, was for the joy that was set before him. And I'm gonna get to that in a second, but I have to give you more treatment on the cross. Um, and then it's important to note as well that he willingly endured it. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus is talking about the cross that was coming, and he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down myself. He willingly went there. And then the endurance doesn't start or stop at the cross. Like, the the cross is not the starting point of Jesus' suffering on our behalf. Um, If you go through the Gospels, here's a few examples. In John chapter seven, Jesus was mocked by his own brothers. In Mark chapter three, uh, his family came to pull him out of a crowd that he was healing and teaching to because they said he was out of his mind. Um, You've never been that rejected, bro. That is so crazy to be doing a ministry that's changing the world and have everyone you love say that you're crazy. Like, Maybe you've been that rejected, like that's feasible, but that's, that's crazy. Jesus endured that, of being completely misunderstood. So misunderstood. Again in Mark three, right after that, it says that his peers, the Pharisees, these other religious scholars, accused him of being full of demons. Like, the people that were supposed to respect him and understand who he was because they were so committed to studying the scripture, they missed him, they slandered him, they, they gossiped about him, they talked so lowly of him, and they accused him of all kinds of wild things, including being demon-possessed. Like, that's what life on earth was like for Jesus. Accusation and misunderstanding and pointed fingers. Like, not fun. And then at the end of his life, he was sold out by one of his closest friends and then abandoned by by everyone who had been following him for years. Completely ditched and left alone. Not the kind of experience that I wanna be having, right? Or any of us? You know, like, I don't wanna be in his shoes in that situation. Um, If you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus' life was characterized by constant sacrifice and constant humility. A, a crazy commitment to taking the lowest place possible. He, he hung out with Pharisees, he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, sat at, his, sat at his feet with him, and he welcomed them. Like that's, the humility at his time for that to take, we might miss that, but he's the only person in his culture that would have been doing that. The only one who would have been welcoming the outcasts, right, and he found a place amongst them and he didn't despise being identified with them, that's crazy like that's just it doesn't make any sense. And you go read John chapter 13, he washed the disciples' feet. He took the lowest place and became a servant and washed the feet of those that were younger than him, that learned everything from him, that still didn't get it, that were about to abandon him. He washed their feet and made them clean. Jesus even says the son of man came not to serve but to be not to be served but to serve. Like Jesus laid everything down. The best exposition of this is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. It says Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that's really important. Though he was in the form of God, did not account his equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the cross, even to the point of death, excuse me, even death on a cross. He emptied himself, other verses said he, says he became nothing. He became nothing. So I need you to understand what's happening here. Let me read one more verse to you. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. These two verses together. Jesus was in heaven, for, he's, he's always existed, he's always had everything he's ever needed. We, like you have to understand that God lacks nothing. There's nothing he's missing out on, but his desperation to achieve humanity and win them over for himself, which we'll get to, drove him to the point of becoming nothing becoming nothing, emptying himself and becoming obedient to a criminal's death. That is what Jesus was willing to do. That is the shame that he despised and was willing to endure. That's the craziest thing ever. I need, like, it, it should even like, shock us when we stop and think about the fact that our God could be described as humble. That doesn't make sense. There's literally only been one person who has ever lived who should not have been humble, yeah. and his name is Jesus. Only person ever, but he lived with the craziest humility you've ever seen, ever, ever, and endured the suffering that comes with taking the lowest seat all the time and being misunderstood and being rejected and being hated and being scorned and being beaten and being crucified. Jesus emptied himself and was willing to go there. So now let's consider what was the joy that was set before him that was the fuel and the motivation to cause Jesus to do something like this. The joy that the writer of Hebrews talks about is you is me, that is the joy that was set before him. So this is the picture, I just love to imagine that Jesus on the cross, like, he despised the shame, and he's up on that cross and he's nailed to a 300 pound piece of wood. He's got nails through his wrists or hands, wrists if you wanna be accurate, hands if you wanna seem cool. (laughs) Well, wrists if you're pretentious and you like to tell everybody that you're right all the time. I don't know, that was a dumb joke, but I love to interrupt really serious moments and just kill it. I just quench the spirit every time. Um, No, but I I just imagine Jesus nailed to this cross, like hanging there and and going, and and not, not only that, but bearing the weight of human evil. Every sin that's ever occurred was placed upon him. You have no idea what that's like. The full weight of every grievance and every error and every bit of failure and every sin and every act of evil, every evil thought all of it, everything placed upon him as if he was the guilty one. So he's bearing the full weight of the shame and the guilt and the condemnation of that, wearing that on his back. That's, that's mental torment, spiritual torment on a, in, in a way that we do not even have words to express. Jesus is willing to endure that. And I just imagine on the cross, Jesus even says, if I wanted to call down a host of angels to rip me off this cross, I could do it. I could do it. And he didn't, why? What holds him back? Why does he forbear? Why does he have patience? Why does he hold back from that? Why? Because on that cross, it was my face flashing through his mind. And he said, for him, I will stay here. And for you, I will stay here. Like that is what's going through the mind of Christ when he is nailed to a criminal's cross. He says, for them, I am willing to stay. I am willing to endure, though I despise the shame of this. And I know I don't deserve to be naked in front of a crowd, being spat upon and shamed in my clothes, being bitted upon. I don't deserve this, but I'll stay here because I don't want them to have it. I'm willing to do it because I want them so badly, because there's a joy that's set before me when I win a people for myself. It is is worth it to do this. And so because of us, because of his great love with which he sees us through, he is willing to bear our iniquities. That's what, it, that's what Isaiah 53 goes on to say. I won't read it right now, but what it says is he was, he was pierced for our, our rebellion, He was sick, he bore our sickness so that we could be healed and made whole. Why, because we're sick, because we're evil, because we're sinful, because we're lost, because we're confused, because we've married ourselves to darkness and we don't know where we're going, we don't know whose we are, we've got a million masters, we're walking through this world fumbling, trying to come up with something good, and God sees, oh wow, you have no clue what you're doing, let me intervene and make something happen. I'll bear the weight of your iniquity and your sin. I'll show up and take the pain that you should have and it'll be on me so that you can prosper, so that you can know me, so that I can have joy in making mine. That is what the cross is about. And the problem is we've ripped the heart of Christ out of the cross, where we make the cross like just this this kind of cool moment where we're like, dang, I can't believe God did that. No, he's burning with passion. He burns with passion and with zeal and with crazy otherworldly love that you can't even imagine, words that not even the greatest of poets could possibly express. This is the craziest love you've ever seen, you've ever heard of, you've ever felt. It's, it's gnarly, bro. There is nothing like it, and it's that love that drives Jesus to stay nailed to a cross. It's crazy, crazy, crazy love, and it's for your sake. That he takes your place and he overcomes everything that is against you. The sin that destroys you, the weight that holds you back, the enemy who has a claim upon your life legally because you've sold yourself to him and you don't even realize it. Jesus says, I'm coming and I'm conquering all of that and I'm making you mine. It's awesome. The cross is pretty cool. It's a really big deal. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. It says, for our sake God made him who." made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus becomes sin, becomes a curse for your sake, so that you could become his righteousness, so that the life he lived of sinless perfection could be accredited to you, so that when the Father sees you, he looks through the lens of the Son's blood and he calls you clean. And Hebrews chapter 10 says he calls you perfect so that nothing is held against you and so that you can have perfect union with God. And so don't believe this lie from the enemy that God is disinterested with you. He was so interested and so passionate about making you his own, he was willing to lose it all. It cost Jesus everything to get you. This was no small sacrifice. This wasn't just a weekend. It cost Jesus everything, everything. Everything It cost him everything and he was, he was willing to do it. And he said it was worth it because you, because you are the joy that he now gets to have for eternity. Because you are the prize. Because you are the prize. And so don't tell me God is disinterested in you. You were the prize he wanted so bad he died. God died and rose again. It's awesome, there's a happy ending on that story. But the cross is this moment where the love of God for all humanity, and you as an individual, it's not a group project, the love of God for all humanity is proven, is proven once and for all. And then now we get this invitation from Jesus to come be in his family. God's disinterested with you, no. He's more interested with you, he's more caught up in love with you than anyone has ever been or ever will be. You'll never find a love that wants you this bad, ever, that doesn't breach on codependency and is gonna need some therapy after. For realsies. In Jeremiah 31, God says that his inner being yearns for you. God has an inner being and somehow inside of that inner being he can yearn for things and he yearns for you of all things. That's what he wants. So that we might be made right with God and so that you can become children of God. There's this like lie floating around that we're all children of God. No, no we're not. What it says in the Bible, in John chapter one, verse 12, that we were given the right to become children of God. And it is only if you receive the the cross of Christ and his resurrection and his power, if you receive the gospel and follow him that you will become a child of God and experience God as a father, as Abba, as a dad, as a caretaker, it's the only way. It is the only way, through the blood of Jesus. And so the life of Jesus was a rescue mission in which he was, mission, mission, in which he was willing to lose it all that he might gain you for himself. You were the prize. Okay, line number two, they're adding minutes. It's so awesome. <laughs> That's how you know you're preaching a banger when they, keep <laughs> when they keep adding minutes on there, it's dope. And then I know the glory is coming when the inside of my beanie is 8,000 degrees Kelvin. I did Kelvin because I don't know what a lot in Celsius is and you guys don't do Fahrenheit. I almost said Pharisee. Okay, ah. <laughs> oh. Thank God for, for attention deficit hyperactive disorder. You know, it really is a superpower. I'm serious. Anybody here have ADHD? Yeah? She knows, superpower. I don't know, you don't get it, you guys don't get it. Okay. <laughs> Line number two, lock in with me, here we go. Line number two is that God is cold and impersonal. So we can be like, okay, I can agree, that I was important to Jesus, so much so that he was willing to die. But beyond that, I don't think God is, continues to be passionate about me. And I don't know that I can interact with God at an intimate level. That's gonna be our key word here. Uh, but let's come back to David, right? We went at the beginning that he wants to dwell in God's house. David says in Psalm chapter 63, verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So. How many of you ever experienced, outside of God, a love that's better than life, right? That's like pretty extreme, right? You know what I'm saying? Outside of like middle school when you're like, (gasps) you know, I still think about, oh man, one way to make yourself feel like embarrassed and cringy is to be like thinking of all your like high school, middle school relationships and the things you would say to them. You're like, oh my gosh. You ever read like old texts from high school or like middle school? That is the worst decision ever, but it's so funny, dude. It is so funny, the things I have like read, I can't live without you. I said that, no, I said that, that's not even a joke. I have said that on multiple occasions. I was the lost child. Anyway, David says that this love he's experiencing, listen, I gotta think about if I should say that joke. <laughs> David had a few wives, okay? So he took a few tries at this thing on finding love. He, I, he did, he did, okay? And that's, that's, a, that's a complicated conversation as far as polygamy and all that stuff. But David had a few wives, so if anybody more, I mean, how many of you got multiple wives? So you're gonna need some pastoral care after this. Uh-oh, <laughs> <speaking> Uh-oh. run, reggie. Isn't that good? Is that not good? <speaking> like scoops. Okay, sorry, I just do like, that just came out of me. That was, uh, I rebuke that, okay. Um, but David, listen, listen, come with me, come with me on this journey, David, he had a, I don't know how many, three or four, something like that. His son had a ton, like next level a lot. Like 500, he was, he was a player. And God was not stoked about it. But okay, so David, David has a few wives and he's got a bunch of kids. I Man, he's got everything. He's got friends that he killed. Like it was so awesome. But he's got like his mighty men. He's got Eleazar. Go read about Eleazar. There's a story about Eleazar fighting next to David and he kills so many men that the blood causes his sword to stick to his hand. Like it wouldn't come off. Like what, that is commitment, that's crazy commitment. He had brother, brother, brotherly love on like an, a, a way that I've never experienced it. Like, I mean, I could have friends that would try, but I mean, they're dead immediately. Like if they like went to battle with me, like I'm saying, like they're, did you get, do you understand the joke that I'm making? Okay, cool. <laughs> cool, as long as, well, as long as we're on the same page, then this will be a really good sermon. Um, okay, so David experiences love in like all the, they even say no. Okay, I'm not gonna say that. Uh, David and Jonathan. No. 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 Okay. He. He. <laughs> No, I'm not gonna saying it. Uh, well, okay. So like, there's like all these people who say that David and Jonathan had like a bromance, but more than like bros, like they were more than bros. But like that doesn't make any sense, and the scripture does not attest to that at all. But they're like, they think David and Jonathan like had like loved each other, like really loved each other. But like the Bible doesn't say that. So I'm just saying like David had a lot of love in his life from people that were important to him. But there's one person that he says their love was better than life. Okay, that is the very long way of saying it's only God's love that can be described this way. And if he was cold and impersonal, then David would not describe it that way. Does that make sense? Okay, I took us the long way around. Um, I get so excited. Okay, Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 through 16. It says, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, so Jesus is so, it, it, like wants to, ex- wants to be able to relate to us. This is a part of why Jesus, God becomes man, okay? That Jesus wants to interact with us on a relational level and to take that to the next level, so he literally becomes a man and takes on human flesh. And there's this thing called the hypostatic union where Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's both at the same time, fully and completely. It's a crazy mystery, it makes no sense, it's a paradox. It's supposed to be that way because human brain tiny, God brain big. And so, uh, but that's what Jesus does. He comes and he levels with us and he gets in the dirt with us so that he can understand what we're going through. And then he does it all without sin. And he's tempted in every way that we have been yet without sin. He fully experiences what it's like to be, with, to be human so he completely understands us. He's empathetic. He's sympathetic with us, right? He just understands. It's like those, those cringe he gets us ads. Have you seen them? I guess you guys didn't watch the Super Bowl. They're weird. Well, you know, they could be cool. I have friends that like them. I just, it's not my, not my particular taste. He gets us. Jesus isn't liberal or conservative. He gets us, guys. That's what they say in this. I mean, he isn't, I'm, or I don't know. I've never asked him his political affiliations. Maybe we should get around to that. That could, <laughs> sorry, that's really stupid. Especially to say in Canada. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so stupid. okay, but he does understand what it's like to be one of us, just on like a really, really deep level. Like I've been struggling with some some pretty tough sickness for a while, and um, it just kills religion I, I, in a ba- when I say religion, I mean like it kills legalism and trying to perform for God and trying to be enough for him and, and trying to earn his love. It just kills it when I can go you know like. Jesus understands what it's like to be weak and he's not like, try harder son, get up, be strong. He's like, no, man, I totally understand what it's like to be weak for you, I get it. So then it's like, oh, I don't have to be ashamed, I don't have to cower, I don't have to run away from this God, I can, approach, I can approach him boldly and just know that I'm so loved by him, that I'm treasured by him, that the work of the cross, it's done, it's complete, I'm made new, I'm made whole, you know what I'm saying? that Jesus is never gonna change his mind about me. I can approach him and come and be close with him. Yeah, there's a question I wanna pose, and the question is, what, what does God actually want from us? Um, and Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 22. It says in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so these are your two major like socio-political religious groups, um, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, greatest and first commandment. So this lawyer comes to Jesus and says, hey, what's the number one thing you want from humanity? And Jesus says, I want love. I want to be loved. I want their affection. I want their devotion. I want their loyalty. That's what I want from them. I wanna be loved, mind, body, soul. Everything. I wanna be loved with everything. So if God... If God was cold and impersonal and not intimate, like like how I'm describing to you now, why would he say that, right? If God was not personal, why does he want love first and foremost? Wouldn't, Wouldn't an impersonal God want like servanthood? Not that God doesn't want us to serve him, but wouldn't that be his main priority? Wouldn't he want total perfect obedience, which of course he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and if you love me, you will obey me. Obedience is important, but number one is still, I want your love. I want your love. I want your love. There's no no other God that that poses things that way. There's no other God that says, what I chiefly desire from you is that you would love me and enjoy me. That's crazy. God's priority is our mutual enjoyment of each other, not you and I, me and him. That's God's priority for my life, is that him and I would enjoy each other forever. That's the point. That's, That's what he means when he says, I want your love. And so, The question is, how could a God who was cold and impersonal want that, right? In fact, listen, God is so personal that he rejects anything else, any other kind of following. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's, we have, we have two kinds of people here. There's a condition that Jesus creates. There's people who come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, it's saying like, yeah, yeah, I know who you are, you're Jesus. In my life, Jesus, in your name, I cast out demons. I experienced the supernatural. We healed people. We acted prophetically. We, we, you told us things that were gonna happen in the future. We prophesied. I know that that happened. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, because the priority was not that you would function in the supernatural and be a really awesome servant of God. The priority was that you would know me is what he says, I never knew you. We did not know each other. That word know in the Greek is gnosko, and what it means is personal, mutual experience of each other. So what God wants from you is for you two to be experiencing each other all the time. And he rejects any other life with God, that he doesn't want anything else. If you you are living life with Jesus, a life with God of any kind, and it's not about mutual enjoyment and experience of one another, it's not about knowing him, being personal and intimate, experiencing real relationship and friendship and sonship or daughterhood to him, it's not what God wants. Okay? And that's not a I'm trying to walk you into shame moment at all. If you realize something is wrong, hey, there's this thing called the grace of God yeah. and God redeems and restores, it's awesome. Just know that you have the wrong motive or the wrong heart and tweak things because this way of following Jesus in friendship is better. It's better. And John 15, Jesus says, I no, <clears throat> I no longer call you slaves, I now call you sons, or excuse me, friends. I know i call you friends. He, he has made us friends of God. And then in John 15, in the first 11 verses, he says, abide, abide, abide. Like I think, I think it's 11 times he says that, or it's the first 15, something like that. He says it over and over and over, or remain. Like he says, stay in me, abide in me, be with me, focus on me, that's God's whole thing. It's come and be near to me, be near to me. That's what God desires from you. And so that's his second lie, that God is cold and impersonal, and that's not the case. Okay, this one's quick. Lie number three is that life with God is restrictive, and if you live in obedience to Jesus and you follow him, you'll be missing out. Um, that is a dumb, ugly, stupid, bogus lie from Satan. It doesn't make any sense. First of all, what you'll find is that the Christian philosophy, the Christian worldview, the Christian ethic in every way is the only one that makes sense. Uh, we can argue about that for hours. We can do it. The Christian sexual ethic makes sense. The Christian family ethic makes sense. Every little bit of it, you'll find that it's the only one that leads to real human flourishing. Like. Really, go read the Proverbs, if you obey them, your life will start to work out a little bit better. Um, but the goal is not just a life that works, it's a life full of Jesus, okay? And so it's not just that the worldview is better, um, it's that life with Jesus is better. The only way that this lie could possibly be true is that if your expectation of, of what life with Jesus is like is the half in devotion. Unfortunately for all of us, not really unfortunately, it's actually the best thing ever, but unfortunately for someone with that mindset, Jesus requires everything. He requires all out devo- uh, loyalty and devotion, that's his expectation is that you become his, that he's your Lord, you're surrendered to him, and all you have is his, and all you are is his, and if your expectation is that Jesus can be a really good bonus or a really good medicine onto your life, you're missing the point, point. and yeah, life with Jesus will not work very long. Yeah. It won't work, and you'll find, man, this sucks, because I'm trying to obey a, God, obey a God that I'm not personally devoted to, and my personal devotion to him is like not really fulfilling me, and so I really just feel more shame and condemnation. It's like you, you've not really received the cross, and you're not walking with the Holy Spirit, and you're not doing life with God as he intended, so that just makes sense. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Satan and sin, here's what they're gonna do. This is what they're gonna do the rest of your life, the rest of your life. So long as you surrender to them and not to Jesus, they will steal, they will kill, and they will destroy everything. Every good thing in your life will be stolen, it will be killed, and it will be destroyed. It, Satan will do it over and over and over. Sin will do it over and over and over and over. Yeah. Over and over and over. You, you've all seen sin and Satan destroy things before. Like adultery kills marriage. Lying kills trust and so on and so forth. Good things in your life, Satan will find ways to corrupt them and destroy them, to twist them and break them. Sin will creep in and, re- and just make things not what they're meant to be. He'll, he'll blurry the picture. The beautiful story that God wants to write for your life will be diverted and will go off into some crazy wasteland direction that God didn't intend for you. And so when I hear this lie of like, oh man, but life with Jesus isn't isn't as much fun, I bought that lie for a long time, and it's bogus, it's garbage. When I really began to walk with Jesus closely, personally, intimately as a friend, when I received his freedom, like really let the Lord set me free from the darkness that I was walking in, I found, oh my gosh, life with Jesus is so much better. It's so much better. There, There was no solution to my depression or my anxiety or my suicidal thoughts outside of Christ. I went to therapy, it was awesome, it was helpful, but it didn't free me. Jesus freed me, right? The rejection that I walked with every single day that made me feel unwanted and forgotten and despised and like nobody would ever really love me and like everybody was gonna leave, that was just constant playing in my head all the time, these intrusive thoughts. Therapy didn't fix that for me, though it was helpful and it made me aware of it, Jesus freed me. Jesus freed me, so he is the real solution to these things. He's the fix, but not not just that he comes in and he fixes things and he changes things, but that I get him and he's the greatest treasure that I could ever have, that you were actually made to enjoy him and until you get him into your heart and into your life and until he becomes the main thing and your first love, life will not make sense and it will be messy and broken and confusing and it will be characterized by lostness and darkness and wandering, that's what it'll be like and not that those things aren't a part of the Christian life, certainly it's confusing, certainly it's hard, but I'm doing it with someone. I'm doing it with God. And that gives me this crazy confidence because I believe in a God where it says in Romans eight twenty eight that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It says in Psalm 138 that he will perfect that which concerns me. And in Ecclesiastes three eleven it says, he will make everything beautiful in its time. Unless you are submitted to Jesus, that is not the story. So you can work the rest of your life to work all things for good, to make everything beautiful, and to perfect that, perfect the things in your life. It's impossible, you can't do it, you're not big enough, you're not smart enough, you're not strong enough, but Jesus can. Jesus can. And so when I hear this lie of, oh, life with Jesus, like I'm missing out on on what life could really be, no, bro, you're missing out on what life could really be when you're not living with him. The old life, the old way that I was living in was characterized by spiritual poverty, by death, by destruction, by slavery, and by darkness, by purposelessness, by purposelessness and emptiness. But my life with Jesus, this is not just me trying to be a preacher and convince you of things. This is my real, raw experience. Like, really, this is what I believe every single day. This is what, you find me in the, in the middle of nowhere, like, out of nowhere, and ask me, these, ask me these questions again. I will tell you that life with Jesus it's not just for the sermon. Life with Jesus is, is found, for me, it's spiritual richness, it's abundant life, it's, it's flourishing in my heart, it's real freedom from, from sin and from pain um, and, and from darkness and depression and those things. Life with Jesus is characterized by light, by hope. I have a hope for tomorrow and an excitement for the next day. I feel joy and peace and friendship with my creator. That is what life with Jesus has been characterized by. You can't find that elsewhere. The Holy Spirit. Joy and peace are his fruit. Every other joy and peace that you find is a rip-off. Real joy and real peace can only be made complete by the Son, by the Prince of Peace. It's the only place you can get it. The only place. Life with Jesus is so much better. Yeah. It's what you were made for. Whether you know it or not, it's what you were made for. Yeah. And, in, and the analogy I love to give, because it's so stupid, um, <laughs> is that until your life is with Jesus, here's what it's like, okay? It's like you're taking a a paintbrush and you're trying to beat in a nail or you're trying to use a hammer on a canvas. You will feel in your heart and in your soul that something is wrong and that you're doing something wrong and that things aren't working and it's like a square peg through a round hole. Why isn't this computing? This is so strange. I thought I had everything put together but something's still not working. It's because Jesus is missing and he is the key to it all. He is the defining factor of my life. He makes, oh, he makes life so much better. And I love to say this, there is not a thing in this world, if you had all of eternity to try and convince me there is not a thing in this world, you could convince me to give up Jesus to gain. Nothing, nothing I have found has been better than him, nothing, nothing in all my life has been better than Jesus, better than the Son of Man, than a real, real, real person who is with me everywhere I go, who speaks to me gently, who walks with me closely, who cares for me and loves me intimately. There's no one and nothing better than Jesus, nothing. And so my question is, how could life with Jesus possibly be less interesting? When you're fueled by God and God says, hey, I have an assignment and a purpose for you. That's a good feeling. (laughs) To know, oh my gosh, my life means something. I'm not doing guesswork anymore. I'm not trying to make something of myself. But God is in control of my life and he has somewhere for me to go and he opens the right doors and he's in control and he gives me purpose, and he gives me meaning, it's a lot better than trying to do it on your own. That was very sudden, it was amazing. Just jump scared me, it was awesome, thank you. Uh, This is the verse I'll leave you with. Proverbs chapter 23, 26, this is what I believe the Lord is saying to every person in this room, whether you've been walking with Jesus all your life, um, or even just a long time, or whether you've, you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Proverbs 23, 26, God says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways, or come and delight in my ways, is another way. That's what he says to you, my son, my daughter, give me your heart, and let your, eyes, let your eyes observe my ways. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, for my burden is light and my yoke is easy, and I will give you rest. And so if you've been found needing, if you feel lost, if there's darkness, if you feel confused, even if even if your life is going awesome, and everything's working out, you still need him. You still need him. You still need the grace of God to rescue you from sin. You still need it. But there, there's something deep in the heart of Christ where he just loves the crazies who are desperate, who need help, who will come to him and say, Jesus, I need you, I need you. I can't keep doing it on my own and just say to Jesus, that will come to Jesus and say, you know what, I've tried everything, and you know what, this, sound, this sounds really appealing. I'm gonna, Let's. Let, I'll try this, Jesus, I'll try it. I, I will, I'll, Like, I'll give you a chance, I'll give you a shot here. That heart, that heart that's open to him that says, Jesus, I want you, I need you. Oh, it says in Luke chapter 15 that when, when someone comes to a heart with him like that, that all of heaven celebrates. And I just like to think that when, when heaven and the angels are celebrating, it's, they're not initiating that. They're looking at Jesus and how excited he is and they're like, wait, yeah. And so he, he dances and he celebrates and he's overjoyed. And that cross, it was your face. I mean, it was all of us, but it it was your face flashing through his eyes. And your name and your life, all of it. All of it. All the mess, all the mistakes, all the sin, all the failure. Every area that you screwed up, every bit of it. And he said, oh, I'm so in love with them. I'm so in love with them. I'll give it all to make them mine. So Jesus gave it all for you. He gave everything. It cost him everything. And so now every single one of you have received an invitation to come sit at his table. And I would urge you not to turn away from it, not to turn him down. Come sit with him. Come sit with him and be made whole. So can I just have everybody, can we just close our eyes for a moment? If that's you and you know you wanna follow Jesus, I'm gonna pray something really simple and I just ask that you would pray it in your head out loud. I don't care what you do. Talk to Jesus however you want to. Just believe in this moment that God is listening to you. Really, really listening from heaven. And if you have doubts, it's okay. There's a man in Mark who comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I believe, help me with my own belief. Jesus is not a scared Not scared of doubt. He's not afraid of those things. He's not disappointed. He's dealt with a lot of doubters, myself included. He can handle it. So if you're scared, if you're doubting, if you're not sure, it's okay. But now is the moment where God says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Come follow me. And so I'm gonna pray something and she says it. That's you. And you wanna give your life to Jesus or you really need to get right with God in this moment and you know that your heart, you don't love him like you used to and you need to come back and you need to come back. Just pray with me and just point your heart at God. Say whatever you wanna say to him. But those of you who know that you need salvation as the Bible describes it, to be rescued, right now is the time. So I want you to pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. More than anything, I need you. So I repent of my sin and I turn away from my old ways and I'm choosing to follow you instead. Jesus, I believe that you died for me on a cross and that you rose again three days later. I believe that is good news. Jesus, I confess that you are my Lord. I give you everything. My life is yours now. I belong to you, I am yours and I believe that you are mine. I believe that you love me, I believe that you care for me, that you want me, I believe that you can make all things new. So Jesus, I need a relationship with you. I need to know you. God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? begin to change me, begin to speak to me. Help me begin this friendship with you today. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me first. In Jesus' name.